Hello and welcome to Lighthouse in the Abyss. Uh, the date is August 13th, 2018. And uh, naturally, you know, I was going to do an episode on uh, the topic of forgiveness because it's had a pretty serious... Um, it's been a, a big theme in my life in uh, recent months, recent weeks, and especially recent days. And uh, to read our excerpt from In Green Pastures, of course, today, just by, uh, you know, coincidence, if there is such a thing, uh, it is, the entry for today is Forgiving Injuries. Even those to whom we are the truest friends, and for whom we do the most, will sometimes treat us unjustly, and do us sore injury. We cannot but feel the pain of such wrongs, but if meekly born, they will be turned to good for us by that divine love which transmutes everything into blessing for the life of faith. It is only when we cherish resentment and hold grudge in our hearts that the injuries done to us by others really harm us. Forgiveness robs them of their power to hurt us. Let us forgive generously. Too much of our forgiveness is with reservation. I forgive you, but this ends our friendship. That sort of thing. The fuller our forgiveness, the richer blessing do we take from the injurious treatment. Sorry, I read that a little bit poorly, but you get the idea. And so I've been really, you know, struggling with this concept of forgiveness because, you know, like uh, every human being, there are a copious amount of things for which I need to forgive others, and there is a copious amount of things for which... I myself require forgiveness and one of the things I discussed with uh, the preacher at my church quite recently was the concept of forgiveness without repentance um, because I wonder how far I should go into the story here I mean it's a lot of sort of personal information to put out into the world but you know I, I want to be um, you know, honest and forthright about what my journey as a Christian is really meaning, so I may as well put it out there. Um, so the family that I grew up in was um, like a very typical sort of nuclear family, at least at first glance, where it was, you know, uh, my mom, my dad, and my little sister. And when I was about Ten, I found out that my dad was not my biological father, uh, that he had uh, actually adopted me. Um, so my biological father um, had been obviously uh, seeing my mum and he was also seeing someone else at the same time. Uh, he managed to get both of them pregnant within a year of each other, uh, you know, denied the birth, didn't want anything to do it, like kind of, you know, my mum wasn't prepared to get an abortion, so he sort of, you know, flaked out and left her dangling in the breeze. Um, and then, you know, over the course of her pregnancy, her and um, my dad as being, you know, when I say dad, I, I will always mean uh, the guy that adopted and raised me from day one. Um, you know, they had already been friends and he started seeing her and started adoption proceedings before I was born. And then they got married when I was about two and had my sister when I was three. 
Um, and then in the meantime, my biological father, uh, you know, went off with the other girl that he was seeing and then ended up getting her pregnant accidentally too and having my half-sister. And I didn't meet my half-sister or my biological father until I was about 27. And finding all this out, the way, the, the way in which I found it out at age 10 uh, was not kind of good because there was seemingly some sort of misunderstanding where uh, I suppose my mum already thought that I knew uh, and I didn't. And so it was, uh, you know, to me, I found out in a very sort of cavalier way that really, you know, ripped the fabric of my reality apart because, you know, I felt intensely betrayed. I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life. Uh, it was like finding out that I wasn't who I thought I was and all the people that were important to me weren't who I thought they were. You know, because suddenly my sister is my half-sister. Suddenly my dad is, you know, my adoptive father. Uh, suddenly there's this, you know, other figure who I've never met who, you know, really hurt my mum and she can't really talk about without getting super upset. And, you know, my mum, the one person to whom I am fully related, is, you know, someone who, from my perspective, uh, was capable of a, a long-term deception, uh, allowed me to live a lie and then in a very unjust way, you know, like ripped the rug out from under me. That was how I felt as a kid, you know, and because like a little boy whose brain isn't fully developed, you know, like albeit a, a smart kid, but, you know, a kid nonetheless can't understand the complexity, doesn't have the whole story, can't see uh you know you can imagine right or maybe you can't but it it's certainly very complicated and all of that ended up you know that created a, a string of events throughout you know the rest of my childhood and teenage and adult life I mean it's it's only been in the last few years that I've set about unpacking all this stuff and trying to set it right and in that respect, I mean, the faith that I have in Christ as a redemptive force, so even separating out, you know, the, the story itself, but seeing that the story is representative of an archetypal divine force, a divine love that has existed from the beginning of time, where despite the presence of darkness in the world, all things gradually through transmutation will be converted from darkness to light again. Uh, you know, that's that has become a huge source of stability and, and power and faith and love in that because I'm able to look at my life and its problems and its trials and tribulations through the lens of redemption, I can actually forgive in a way that I haven't previously been able to because I've been able to hold in my life historically legendary grudges, grudges that lasted many, many years. You know, I've felt deep sense of being wrong, a deep sense, wronged, I should say, and a deep sense 
sense of injustice because of all these things and the fact that they made my life so complicated and my own internal nature so fractured and so uh, wounded and so uh, sensitive, like very, it created in me, um, I mean, it gave me a, it gave me a mood disorder. It really was the activation of depression. It was the activation of anxiety and it was the uh, activation of borderline personality disorder traits, which, you know, makes you extremely emotionally volatile, hypersensitive and hypervigilant. You know, you don't, as a result, you end up with the sort of trust issues where the people, you're just always expecting that next time that the rug's going to be ripped out from under you. And that's not a fun anxiety or paranoia to live with. And that really was my reality for close to 20 years of my life. And I would not say that that has been fun. Uh, It's really held me back in a lot of respects. But then, you know, even the way that I perceive that now looking back on it, understanding that all of this is part of a divine plan of redemption to create a meaningful experience. Uh, You know, the way that I even perceive all of this stuff is so completely different now. But I'm sort of... I didn't plan how I was going to talk about all these things and that's probably coming across uh by the fact that i sort of jump from from one tangent to another and i don't have a a clear sort of line through what i'm trying to say i'm very much thinking out loud and in some sense i'm articulating how i feel as i'm doing it as if for the first time so because of all this stuff that happened, you know, I was very angry at, you know, my mom. I was very angry at my biological father. You know, I've been very angry at my family. I've been very angry at myself. You know, I was angry at God for a long time. You know, I think uh, a real, th- like when you're suffering and, you know, you. You suffer from the position of feeling like an, a victim who has been treated unjustly. You know, you feel that you were the innocent party. It's very easy to go, well, how is it that we live in a world where the innocent seem to suffer pointlessly? And it's a naughty problem. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, who, you know, obviously... For those unaware, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia series, but he also, after a lifetime of being a devout atheist, uh, had his born-again conversion moment and became one of the most celebrated uh, literary Christian apologists. And he wrote a series of books um, which were non-fiction, which were about Christianity and spirituality and and Christian apologetics and one of those was the problem with pain where and a lot of a lot of Christian apologists have written books dealing with the subject of pain and suffering 
and the fact that it exists in the world. Um, I would say that nothing good really came of identifying as the victim, despite the fact that you could say, you know, in some sense, if you are on the receiving end of malevolence that you haven't provoked, i.e. you're a child and something extremely screwed up happens to you, you know, in some sense, you are a victim in that moment of unjust actions. It's not to say that that's not the case. But as you deal with these things and try to move forward in your life, nothing good comes from hanging on to that victim mentality. At some point, you just have to say, okay, well, that's what happened. And I have a duty to myself and to the world to process that in a way that I can accept it and move forward from it and continue to strive to make myself and everything around me better. You know, to try and improve the world so things of that nature don't happen to other people, you know? And, I mean, that seems reasonably obvious, but it can be hard to see that. And people that, you know, tilt towards cynicism and nihilism don't see the obvious truth in the fact that, okay, well, no individual, you know, with the exception of Christ, can save the whole world. <sighs> See, it's, it's tough. As I'm saying it, I'm sort of thinking of the exceptions to it. Certainly for us mere mortals, it would seem as if redeeming the entirety of creation is not possible for us. That's something that is left solely in the province of God. But certainly there is a sphere of operation in which you exist, in which if you can manifest yourself correctly and get yourself in line with higher being and seeing the world through God's eyes and acting out his plan of redemption, acting out Christ as the redemptive force that can take even the most, you know, broken and reviled of sinners. You know, take someone like Paul the Apostle, you know, formerly Saul. Take someone that had, you know, lived a, a life in darkness, you know, fanatical, violent you know, a sinner in many, many respects and, you know, turn a man like that back towards the light to see the error of his ways and have him devote his life to the redemption of God's creation through faith and good work. I mean, that that is the central Christian thing to me, uh, that all of us fall short of the perfection of Christ being the purest redemptive force in the world that is capable of moving through the world and only acting for goodness and turning darkness into light, transmuting darkness into light. And so many of us get caught in our ego traps, our wounded pride, our our pain that's in the, the depths of our soul that we don't deal with head on and that causes us 
you know, to turn from the light, to, to pretend that the light is not there, to, you know, turn against God and say, you know, well, if God exists, he must be evil because, you know, look at what's happened to me sort of thing. Woe is me, woe is me. And a lot of people have that mentality. I used to have that mentality and I observe it in a lot of people. But, you know, for all the sins done against you and all the sins you've done against others, you know, they can take you a long way from God and a long way from the light. But what that Christ redemptive force is all about is recognizing that no matter, look, no matter how far you've gotten away, there is always the opportunity to turn back towards the light and be forgiven and redeemed through repentance. And this is really what, you know, because it... All of this kind of stuff that came out of the medieval Christian milieu of, you know, it's all about confess your sins and, you know, like salvation, uh, you know, this idea that we all have to repent for our sins, repent for your sins, you're a sinner, sinner, you know, those, those sort of burning hellfire sermons. I mean, in a weird way, like they're right, but they're not all the way right. Um, you know, they in themselves kind of, missed the mark because they tried to teach through fear, you know, that we need to be scared of falling short. But, and fear can be a great motivator, you know, in the same way that running away from something that scares you uh, is a, is as, as powerful a motivation as, running towards something you love, you know, and to refer back to my first episode talking about the nature of good and evil, you know, you want, you know, Christ in front of you as the thing you run towards because that's, you know, the archetypal force of love and redemption that will make you, you know, worthy. I mean, yeah, it, uh, it makes you worthy of praise, worthy of love, you know, whereas, and to, to turn your back on, you know, the, the satanic, the Luciferian, you know, the sort of, to turn your back on the darkness and not contribute to it and know that to feed that force is to gradually make the world darker and darker. And it's that, you know, whilst you might not, commit the the large sins of anything near what's been done to you you know even your lesser sins comparatively are still pushing the world in that direction i mean the net evil in the world or the net darkness as a value increases by a little or or a lot but it still increases and you know, things compound over time. You know, the more the more we feed the darkness, the stronger the darkness grows and then that perpetuates darkness on other people, which in turn makes them resentful and hurt and then they perpetuate darkness. You know, it begets itself. Misery loves company. And so we have a duty to accept the darkness that has happened to us and as Christ would forgive those people that have wronged us and assist 
in their redemption by, you know, so there's this passage in Luke, which I wish I had it in front of me, uh, because then I could actually quote it correctly. But it's part of talking about um, the principle of forgiveness, and it's if someone sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive. And that, I like that more than some of the other ways that it's phrased in other places in the Bible because I had this big discussion with my uh, my preacher as to whether or not forgiveness is conditional on repentance. And when it came to... Because I was speaking to him the day before I, I had it out with my biological father and uh, we discussed you know, these, these things that, so I guess I didn't really finish the story. So I, uh, I met my biological father when I was about 27 and I met the rest of the, you know, there's this whole extended family and I've gone to various events and I've been able to become closer with a lot of the extended family than I have with him. And part of that is because well, it's a clean slate with all of them, whereas it hasn't been a clean slate with him. And in some respects, I don't know that I would have been able to forgive in the same way. I mean, someone someone sins against you, right? So somebody does something that has a profound negative impact on you. It causes you a lot of grief, a lot of pain. You feel betrayed, you feel deceived. You know, it's it's definitely not good. I mean, betrayal and deception are one of the worst things you can experience. I mean, that seems to, from a psychological standpoint, and this is something that Jordan Peterson as a clinical psychologist has commented on, deception and betrayal really seems to be the one that lays people flat the longest. It's the hardest one to deal with because effectively it, to the person whom is being sinned against, the revelation of that truth demonstrates to them that they have been living a lie and it forces them to evaluate whether or not they can actually trust their own interpretation of the events going on or whether there's other hidden secrets that can hurt them and humiliate them and, you know, make them look, you know, foolish or make them feel scared or paranoid that you know they can't trust the integrity of the experience they're having through life and it's like whoa that's that's you know in those terms that's a very heavy thing to deal with and i've been on the receiving end of that multiple times it's no joke you know when you find out someone's betrayed you and then worse than that they couldn't even own up to it for years which is something that i've dealt with a lot it's really hard to forgive that if the person isn't sorry. And on some level, you can. Like, you can go, okay, sure, well, look, you know, we're all dealing with things. We're not... I'm far from perfect, and I've got my own choices that I've made that have negatively affected people that I have to own up to and deal with 
at you know various stages some have been done some are yet to come it's an ongoing process and if we're all if we're all invested in this redemption process we have to be forgiving and so in some respects it's easy to forgive why well, say easy it's correct to forgive regardless of the repentance but then if you want a really you know because even though you might forgive that person you're not going to let them back into your inner circle you're not going to just let them if they're not sorry you have no reason to think that they wouldn't do it again if they're not sorry then they can justify it in their own mind which means you have no reason to expect any kind of change whereas if somebody repents and actually sees the error of their ways which quite often you'll need to explain to them because a lot of people do things unconsciously and they don't understand the ramifications of what they've done and that's where the rebuking comes in you know someone sins against you and what i've learned from from my recent experiences if you can discuss with them just exactly how it is you know you really explain to them what they've done to you and how it affects you and then you know that becomes an incredibly powerful teaching moment i'm not just talking about shoving your righteous indignation in their face but you know you you see it as a teaching moment you see it as okay this person doesn't even know why the thing they did was as wrong as what it is because they don't know the extent to which it actually affects your being so by rebuking you have this opportunity to teach them about you and how it affects you and that in turn will reveal something about human nature to them which hopefully will make it self-evident that they shouldn't have done the thing and then that will make them you know like repent and and be genuinely sorry and commit to no longer being the person who can act so callously and so thoughtlessly and create you know such suffering for other people so to make this all specific with my biological father for instance so I went down there with uh, my my best friend and uh, so my biological father's wife was there as well and so it was you know me and him and and uh, his wife and my best friend and we all sat and mostly it was just me and him that were talking and it was definitely hard work uh because i had to really illustrate that the choices that he made which were profoundly selfish and they came at the expense of you know my emotional integrity as a child i mean there's just you know there's no way around that that because he wasn't prepared to make the sacrifices that placed my emotional and mental well-being as an innocent child above his own that that would have profound repercussions for me and you know this was a long conversation over a few hours where i had to continually just continue to re-illustrate that my experience was different from his experience and that he 
needed to understand that from my perspective you know and it was it's not just about you know for me it really wasn't about apportioning blame and holding something over his head and just getting to be like oh you you really stuffed me around you know you you've really ruined things for me blah 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 wow 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 it wasn't about that at all but the way i saw it was that in some respects because as i was talking about it i wasn't emotionally invested in it i felt like i'd attempted to i was trying to see this and approach this from the perspective of you know what would jesus do and i think you know jesus would lay out why the sin was a sin you know why this was not the right thing to do and would try and teach you know from from the wisdom of the lived experience in order to correct for the benefit of the person that you're rebuking and so in some respects i was seeking closure i was like a legal advocate for my earlier self you know i was i was advocating for you know the kid that i grew up as and the kid that suffered but also i was advocating for the part of my father that i know is god's perfect and holy child you know that that was sure he was ignorant and he was selfish but he was a dumb kid himself you know i mean this this happened when he was in his 20s you know and i think about the stuff that i did in my 20s and it's just like yeah okay i get it like It takes a long time to develop wisdom on your own if you don't accept the uh, commonly held wisdom as it is instantiated in our, you know, religious and moral philosophies. So, and that in itself does seem to be a, a great sin. You know, why, why is it that we're so prepared to think that we can figure out life in, in the course of our life, so figure out our life as we're living it, more than the accumulated wisdom of many generations before us who have recorded their findings over observations that happened over thousands of years. I mean, the, the supreme arrogance that uh, you know, human beings display in that we think we know better, we think you know every generation thinks they're the smartest generation that ever lived and you know we think that oh well look i won't go on that rant it doesn't matter but when when i would sort of look at him and when I, the way that i was approaching the conversation was that even if he wasn't sorry i could forgive but what that would mean for him wouldn't be as good as what it would mean if he understood. Because effectively to let him get away with it, so to speak, would be for him to not have learned that lesson or have that opportunity to change or have that opportunity to spiritually grow. You know, to, to effectively live in denial and to get to continue in a self-styled lie 
in a self-deception that he hadn't done anything wrong and that he has, you know, nothing to repent for, which, you know, I would say is very clearly not the case. And so by insisting that he understand the reality, that gives him opportunity to learn something about human nature and learn something about the consequences of his decisions and to learn something about you know, what it means to fall short of the mark. And I mean, we know that, you know, one of the things that's instantiated in Christianity is, I mean, (laughs) look, marriage doesn't exist for the benefit of the people that are getting married, I don't think. I mean, it does a bit, but really marriage is about giving the kids the most stable every single statistic in the world points towards the fact that kids that grow up under married parents in wedlock do better across the board than kids that don't and so effectively because all the people that have an anti-marriage argument it's always selfishly motivated it's always basically you know well why why shouldn't i be allowed to uh you know freely like leave why shouldn't i be allowed to negotiate open polyamorous relationships why shouldn't i be able to and when you don't have kids involved it's like yeah fair enough you know maybe maybe there is a philosophical argument even though look the the polygamy statistics societies that engage in polygamy do not become stable because you know you end up in this situation where the very successful guys are sleeping with all the girls, which creates way more situations with guys who are, you know, incels, the involuntary celibates, who get resentful, and then that leads, they, and they get violent. You know, it's definitely not good. Uh, so even even that, just that idea that we should be able to negotiate you know, polyamorous, polygamous relationships because, you know, what should be... Um, I mean, from from just a, a philosophical standpoint, what is negotiated between consenting adults shouldn't be the business of the state, shouldn't be the business of other people, really, you would think you know, just taking a sort of a core libertarian, core classic liberal idea. You know, between consenting adults, all things should be open to negotiation. But then the huge caveat to that is that we need society to be stable, and so certain behaviours, even if they are negotiable, would seem to be unwise in terms of the ramifications that they play upon larger society. And I think we can agree that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few to kind of take the, the you know, Vulcan Star Trek uh, approach to it. You know, that the safety of the people is the highest law, which is, you know, the Roman concept, uh, that stable societies are better for everybody and that, you know, the net gain from a stable society is worth some of your individual choices being limited. And in particular, it would seem to be the case that, so even, I mean, once you add the children element, it becomes self-evident that it is not a good thing 
for kids to grow up in broken homes. I mean, kids that are kids of divorce or kids of widows or kids of, you know, single parent homes. I mean, you can look at individual cases where people manage to do extremely well, but the the tendency when you average it out and look at it from from the sort of widest perspective, the statistics couldn't be more clear on this, that it's not a good thing. And, I mean, I, I really got to live through, to some extent, the best of both worlds because I got to have, you know, a married two-person home nuclear family experience in part, which was ideal, but then I've also gotten to live the broken family, half-siblings, you know, contentious parents thing as well. And so I feel that I do have maybe not a unique perspective because I'm sure I'm not the only person in this situation, but I do feel that I can see the value. I, I, I get to have lived both, and that gives me a certain degree of insight. And so marriage really is about providing the most stable conditions whereby children can be raised healthily so that they can take their place and be productive members of society. And if if a kid gets a stable upbringing, that kid's going to be a force for good in the world. But if the kids get an unstable upbringing, you know, chances are, I mean, even though they can be a force for good in the world and people are capable of transcending and transmuting their darkness into light and there is a valuable mechanic in that redemption... Overall, there's still going to be, you know, as they take on the darkness, it will necessitate that there's a certain degree of perpetuated darkness that comes from that. So, you know, that because pain and misery has a tendency to spread and resentment has a tendency to project itself. You know, these... Yeah, I'm not sure how to, how to phrase exactly what I'm talking about here, but I think... I think you guys probably get what I'm getting at here. So I got to have this remarkable teaching moment with my biological father where I, I really laid out my case and, you know, he's because he's a very stubborn man, he's a very proud man, he doesn't like to show vulnerability and I think he was scared that if he admitted to something that, you know, he he didn't have sufficient evidence or faith that I would be letting him off the hook, you know, where I wanted to take the shadow looming over us away so the light could be revealed. I think his fear was that if he admitted to it that I would hold an even greater darkness over his head forever, you know, because that is the sort of thing that resentful types will do. But because I was able to illustrate my motives for the conversation very clearly and that it wasn't just about me being vindicated and me getting to my closure and me getting to, you know, apportion blame and blah, 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 that it was far more about, okay, let's like really acknowledge the past, address it openly, see where things, you know, could have gone better, use it as a teaching moment, use it as, you know, it's, we now have a relationship that has been forged in fire. You know, it's a it's been forged in battle because we had to really we had a clash of realities. We had a clash of lived experiences. 
you know, he had a story that he was telling himself about what had happened and I had a story that I was telling myself about, about what happened and those stories had to do battle. But they did battle through the lens of not fear and blame and hatred and resentment, but they did battle through the lens of love and redemption and wanting the best for all the parties concerned because if you lay out your proposition initially and I had this same thing with my mum and I've had this same thing uh, with my ex when it comes to addressing these big potentially soul destroying potentially relationship ending problems if you're coming at them from the position of I want this relationship to be better I, I want the thing that gets us both closest to the light. You know, I want the best for you and your spirit and I want you on the side of what's best for me and my spirit and then we all get to be better together. You know, this is the Christian thing. And I mean, I'm not saying it's exclusive to Christianity insofar as there aren't other religions that are trying to get everybody to see the light and band together and understand that we are all God's perfect and holy children and we should behave as such. But I do think where good and evil has been really laid out in a lot of religions, uh, you know, and that that came really from the, the prophet Zarathustra or Zoroaster, which is the core kind of... Uh, so religious historians see Zoroastrianism as the first monotheistic religion, which it's kind of not. Um, like I, I see why academics think it is, but that's because they're not seeing the polytheistic religions correctly, um, you know, by, by my estimation. But, uh, you know, that's where we get our idea of uh, Satan or the devil, the adversary. And, you know, that idea is instantiated, like there are light and dark forces in a lot of different religions. But what is so core to Christianity that really makes the big difference is the concept of redemption. It's that light exists and dark exists and everything in between exists, but ultimately uh all things can be redeemed through the redemptive force and that redemptive force is Christ and that is what brings us back to the Father which is the unity of God because all things, all the good and all of the evil must necessarily be contained inside the one thing which is God as the unity. You know, God as everything. The Father that sets everything in motion, that has made all the decisions there's not a single thing that exists in all the heavens and earth that is not by his perfect intelligent design. And if you accept that premise, because this people don't like the idea that the creation is perfect because the creator is perfect. People don't like that idea because you can look around and you can go, well, there's a lot of kind of not great things that are happening. And, you know, fair enough in some respects, but... It's because, you know, you're not seeing the capacity for how it's redeemed. I'll tell, I'll tell you my faith. This is my truest in the depths of my soul and spirit faith is the fact that we are all 
going to return to the loving arms of God. We will all be drawn back into the unity from which we began. You know, the the Big Bang that started creation when God set, let there be light and there was light and then created the heavens and the earth and set about putting the creation into motion, it created the idea of separateness and it used darkness in order to do it. You know, that all the bits of light that exist have, you know, this darkness as an outline that creates an illusion of separateness. But on one level, on the highest level, the level of God most high, the, the supreme level of being, there is no separateness. Everything is part of the one thing that has existed from the beginning of time and to which it all must necessarily return. And in that respect, I think that when we all do return to God, which we will, we'll all get there at different times, but we're, it's going to happen because there's no way for it to go any other way, I don't think. But when the whole thing is done. You know, what the, the mystics refer to as the great work, which is the great work of creation by the creator. It will, all the loose ends will be tied up. The story will somehow resolve in this incredibly profound way that everyone will be happy with. Like there will just be such triumphant victory and love and it's just that it's beyond us. It's beyond our our you know, our tiny, ignorant human minds bound in our egos, bound in our separateness, bound in our, our perceived separateness, bound in our perceived pain, our pride, our, you know, all of these things that lead us to think that we're not perfect and that the creation isn't perfect and that things aren't good. I mean, if God created everything, it, look, can can a perfect creator create something that isn't perfect? And if God is omnipotent, could God create something that seemed like it wasn't perfect to creatures of limited perception that he populated this creation with? You know, these are the, the philosophical questions that are very, very knotty problems. Like, they're, they're hard, they're very brain-bending to kind of get your head around. But genuinely, I really have come to believe that the whole story is one of darkness moving towards light and that the end of the story will be when the last piece of darkness rejoins the light and I think here's what's so trippy the last piece of darkness would have to be the thing which is most dark in all of creation and that thing which is most dark is the thing that has its back to the light the most and that thing would have to be Lucifer necessarily by definition if you have your spectrum again this is sort of bringing back things that I talked about in the first episode on one end of the spectrum, you've got 
the pure light, pure correct, pure righteousness, the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus Christ. The complete opposite of him is Lucifer. You know, because that's all of the darkness, all of the rebellion, all of, you know, yeah, it's... That's the ultimate of the my will versus thy will dichotomy. Thy will, your Christ, who has utter faith in the Father, who knows that everything good comes from the Father and God's plan is perfect and God's creation is perfect. Or you don't think those things, in which case you fall short of the glory of God and the degree to which you fall short of that necessarily puts you in the direction of Lucifer. And so I have this theory that the prodigal son is actually the story of all creation. I actually think that God's because we know that Lucifer was God's favorite son. Yeah, you know, he held the highest position in all the heavens. And in some respect, you know, Cain and Abel is like Jesus and Satan. You know, they're they're the two warring brothers in heaven. And the story of the prodigal son is that you know a, a father has two sons uh, who you know have a an inheritance in. Uh, you know, all that the father has. And one son does the right thing and stays with his father and trusts his father and honors his father and does all the right things and he stays and does what his father wants to do. So he's the thy will guy. It's basically father knows best. So there's Christ in relation to God the father. But then the other son, well, he takes his inheritance and he leaves his father and he travels off and he spends it all on cocaine and hookers. I mean, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but it does say that he, you know, like blows it all on whores and wine, and I can't remember. But my point is this. This is precisely, you know, what Lucifer has done because he's turned his back on his father and travelled as far from his father as anyone could get. By definition, that's what he has to be in a technical sense. He is the force that is the opposition, the furthest opposition from God's will. And But if, if God is love, well, he loves both his sons equally. And when the son, the prodigal son, realizes the error of his ways and turns back and makes that long trudge back to his father, he's received with open arms and there is a feast and a celebration and necessarily, I think that it could only be the case that the creation is not finished until everything has been redeemed. And that includes every piece of darkness, including the last piece of darkness. And so in a weird way, in a weird way, Lucifer is like the star of the show because man is created and is tempted by, I think it's the Nakash, the shining one, who's the serpent in the Garden of Eden, which we identify with with Lucifer or the devil. And that is the thing that injects that darkness into us and necessitates the fall and gives us the free will to be able to choose to move towards God or away from God. And we all must, 
necessarily turn ourselves, turn our backs on our own Luciferian nature and redeem ourselves and the world and the creation through knowing that there is a redemptive force of light and love and that as we do this, the world will get better for everybody and fewer terrible things will happen and human nature will transcend its egotistic ways, it will transcend its animal reactive ways. You know, because a big, such a big part of our darkness, I'm going to have to, I might stop this and just start another hour here. Okay, so I was going to, I mean, I did record 45 minutes more here and it was really good and I was really happy with it. I was very excited to get this episode out. And then once again, this buggy app has lost my work because of terrible design. So I don't think I'm going to use Anchor anymore. Um, I can't bring myself to re-record 45 minutes. I can't even find out exactly where I left off because there's no function to preview the audio and drop the needle at the end so you can hear the last things you said. I think I was talking about animal versus spiritual nature. I talked at length you know, about the redemptive force of Christ, the fact that I think, you know, the the overall story of creation, the pattern of creation is that, you know, it's the darkness that separates the things that are of the light and that ultimately everything will make its way back to the unity of being, you know, one light and one love again. And lots of other things. I went extremely in-depth. This whole thing has been extremely frustrating and I can't bring myself to try and re-record this 45 minutes and have it all be coherent again as this is now the second time I've had to do this because of this garbage app. So I'm going to put this up as is, hope that it stands on its own as having some value and when I can bring myself, I'll listen to it and when I'm not frustrated by how much effort I've just wasted, uh, I will re-record the rest of this episode and upload it. So uh, I hope you enjoy. Please hit me up at, at Bill Darklighter on Twitter or Instagram and uh, I'll re-record the rest of this episode when I'm not supremely frustrated by technology. So, all right, thanks. God bless. See you all.